Nurses and Hypochondriacs, the podcast that brings nurse experts, patients, and hypochondriacs together to discuss hot topics in healthcare. And here is your host, Ercilia Pompilio. California Sober. What exactly is California Sober? Well, today here on Nurses and Hypochondriacs, we're going to be talking about it. I recently met up with my very good friend, Gary Taylor, and we met up at my favorite coffee shop in Palm Springs, California, Coffee K-O-F-F-I, and we talked about what California Sober actually is, and we also talk about Demi Lovato and her Dancing with the Devil docuseries on YouTube. We also talk about her most recent Froyo rant that she went off on on Instagram where she was triggered at a frozen yogurt shop because they were offering sugar-free options and gluten-free options to people. So this is a fun episode that you won't want to miss and stay tuned. Welcome, Gary Taylor, to Nurses in Hypochondriacs. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, we're recording today, not live, but we're in Palm Springs, California, at my favorite coffee shop, KOFFI Coffee. And Gary is one of my very good friends. He's actually my phone of friends. Whenever I'm having a bad day, I can always call Gary, and he makes me laugh. And a lot of my friends here know this. Um, even my office manager was like, oh, yeah, he's the Gary that makes you laugh. And remember on my birthday, she was like, hey, so make us laugh. And you can't do it on demand. So it, it's a natural thing that you do, right? Yes. It's a natural talent that I have. I'm very good at it. I don't do it on demand. Yeah. And everybody should just call Gary whenever That's they're having a bad day. So he can make you laugh. My number is 901-649-5737. That's Gary Taylor. But, yeah, and today is your anniversary, 420. Today is my wedding anniversary, 420. Um, Although I loved to, to smoke out on 420, it just happens to be my grandparents' I got married on their 80th anniversary, so 420. Is it really? 420 was actually their wedding day. Oh, wow. That's why it was chosen, uh, not for other reasons. (laughs) That's pretty awesome. And you married one of my good friends, uh, Abner, from... Uh, UCLA. We went to grad school together. He's also been on this podcast uh, very early on uh, when we were talking about valley fever. So uh, that's I guess we recorded that in 2017, if I remember correctly. So other than that, um, I did invite you here today. We're going to be talking about the Demi Lovato special that was on YouTube, Dancing with the Devil. Uh, where she had her uh, near-death experience. She overdosed on heroin, which was laced with fentanyl. 
spoiler uh, spoiler alert if you guys haven't heard or watched the YouTube special it is very good but I did get triggered in episode four quite a bit because um, not only did she go ahead and buy the heroin from her dealer that she had been getting her drugs from for very many years uh, under the guise that she was sober <laughs> publicly sober right in front of many people uh, but he laced her heroin with fentanyl okay and not only did he do that but he also raped her so she uh, had this near-death experience she almost died um, she had allegedly three heart attacks uh, she's partially blind now but what triggered me was two weeks later she went ahead and called her dealer again and he gave her some more heroin and, and she relapsed but she called the same guy who raped her which is ridiculous uh, so that was very triggering for me um, and she's also very open about her eating disorder uh, and how she had to have watermelon cakes with whipped cream over them uh, for her birthday, which I thought was very, very sad. Uh, but now, today, in the media, it's like, I guess it was yesterday that it happened. She went into a frozen yogurt place and, and was very triggered because this place called The Big Chill in Los Angeles had sugar-free options that they were offering and she didn't like that. I guess it was very triggering for her because of her eating disorder, which is very strange because it's like, should the whole world revolve around Demi Lovato and her choices? It's like, alert all the dietitians in America <laughs> or all over the world that Demi Lovato does not want sugar-free offerings at her Froyo place, okay? And she is now the official authority about eating disorders around America. But anyway, that's just my whole take on it. I think it's really crazy that we look to these people for all of this information. But nobody's perfect, what can I say? But anyway, going back to Gary and why we're talking about this today. So, do you wanna tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, first of all, I love Demi Lovato's music. She did a documentary a few years ago where she um, spoke up about her alcohol and drug addiction and her and her path, and then you know at the end of that documentary she was she was sober, and um, I've struggled with alcohol and drug addiction for 20 years, um, in and out of recovery, and you know as of today I have three years of sobriety of, of straight sobriety, and my congratulations. Is, thank you. My life is completely different from what it used to be. Um, you know, I uh, I don't have to change the way I feel because I hate the person that I am. And I lived that way for a long time. And, um, you know, today I have, um, I have a life more than I could have ever imagined. And it's not just talking on a financial sense. It's talking about peace of mind and serenity and all the good stuff that, you know, that comes with living your life along spiritual principles. But as far as Demi Lovato, I have mixed feelings with her. Um, but you got triggered as well towards the end. I got triggered as well. I have mixed feelings about her because I think on one hand, it takes a lot of uh, guts and bravery to, to put your story out there for the world to see. Um, 
on the other hand, I think that there's a big responsibility that comes along with that platform. And sharing your story is one thing, but when, when it's talking about recovery, something that's life or death, I think you have to be very careful in, in what you put out there. And you have to kind of ask yourself, is, does it need to be said? Does it need to be said by me? And does it need to be said right now? And I think some of the story, um, quite frankly, she could have kept to herself. But I was triggered uh, with the fourth episode uh, because I don't, basically because I didn't agree with, with the path that she had chosen. And I don't know if that makes me judgmental, but everything that I've learned with my struggles with sobriety is uh, complete abstinence from mood-altering substances. And, um, and she talks about California sober. Yeah, the, the like, what Cali is that? California, California sober. sober is abstinence from drugs, with the exception of marijuana and moderation of alcohol. And you know, as a as someone in recovery, um, if I could do, have moderation, I you know, I would still be drinking and using. And that was my whole problem. Once I started, I couldn't stop, and I, I had no control over, you know, the quantity or the amount that I did. So. And you go around telling your story, much like Demi Lovato is telling her story on the YouTube platform <clears throat> and on her Instagram platform with her whole Froyo rant. But you go around to addiction centers, correct? Go down to institutions and hospitals and rehabs. And I, um, I, I tell my story and it's, I don't preach to people that you need to do this, you need to do that to stay sober, you need to do this. I simply tell them what my life used to be like, what I did and what it's like now. And, you know, hopefully someone can relate to what I've been through and possibly be attracted to the way my life is now. And so it's kind of the concept of you want what I have, do what I did and you'll get what I have. That's awesome. And you also have a book club at also your home. I have a book club where I get together with some people that I met in early sobriety and we've, we've gone kind of down this road together and we get together and discuss the literature that's put forth by, uh, by Folks Anonymous. So very much like Demi Lovato, she had this near-death experience where she overdosed and died. You had an overdose experience, which was very life-changing for you. I had, actually I had two overdoses. Um, the first one, I ended up in the hospital, and when I came to, they said that I was very close to being on a ventilator, that they brought me back to life. And I'll tell you what, my addiction is so strong. When I left that hospital, I left the hospital gown and I went straight to my drug dealer. So I can relate to Demi Lovato calling her drug dealer back, but I think it's a crock of shit where she says she was doing it to regain her power. I think she just wanted to get high. That's my personal thought of it because that's, that's all I did. I wanted to get high. Right, and, and what she says about it is like she went to this retreat where they were talking, it was like a trauma retreat where, uh, and this is what I do in shamanic journey and also in my storytelling classes is 
you go back, it's kind of like going back in time and kind of reliving that experience, but putting a positive twist on it. And I'm guessing this is what this trauma retreat was trying to do. I'm not exactly sure what trauma retreat and who was running it, and it probably cost a ton of money uh, to do it. But um, obviously, she took it the wrong way uh, and saying, oh, well, now I got to go regain my power and relive this whole situation. This is how I saw it. But yet I did it because I now was in control of buying the drug from this guy so he didn't have to come and rape me. Uh, that's what my take was, which was like not I, I was like, that doesn't make any sense. But that's what I got from it. So with your do you want to comment on that? Well, what I get is, is that she had a sense of powerlessness. And right. I think where the confusion was. It's not that she was powerless against the dealers. She was powerless against the drug. So, you know, there have been many other ways where she could have taken that situation and put a positive spin on it. But the spin that, that But she was, was also raped, though, and, and that put her in a powerless situation. So I think that that's what she was trying to go back and say and, and regain power over. Uh, to where she was like, I just want the drug, but you don't touch me. I, I mean, I, I don't know. Um, and I know that sounds a little bit crass, but that's how it came off in my head that that's what she was trying to do. But like, why would you go back and buy drugs from a guy who raped you and left you for dead and naked? Makes well, no it it kind of sounds like to me, it's where I'm going to drink the poison, but I want you to die. Where she put herself in a situation um, Here's the thing for, for addiction, at least for me, the disease in the literature, it says it's cunning, baffling, and powerful. And what amazes me every time is how the brain, um, at least in, in, my, you know, in, in my experience, can trick me to think that either my addiction wasn't really that bad or that one drink is going to make what I'm going through better. And so for me, that's that's kind of the insanity of it, and the, the disease is very cunning, baffling, and powerful. Now, why she would choose to go um, put herself in a in that same situation all over again to try to regain power is just shows me the uh, the insanity of it in my mind. Totally, totally. So when you had your last overdose, can you go and describe what happened? Like, why did you decide to use again after you were in the hospital? I mean, you, you just said all you wanted to do was go back and use. So that last time before you overdosed, because that time was almost, it, it was like you were, oh, they told you you weren't going to make it. If, if the paramedics had gotten to you, well, I was driving when I overdosed, and I just remember telling myself, if you don't throw yourself in the street right now, you're going to die. I was having seizures, and I opened the door to my car, and I rolled into the street. Dramatic, yes, but <laughs> I love me some drama. Um, That's right. <laughs> um, but... You know, the, the reason I went back, I don't think it was a conscious decision. I think it was just the drugs and alcohol had become my master. 
So I was, I felt like I was, I was a prisoner to that, just the same as I was a prisoner to tobacco. I remember we went on a uh, adventure into the Mexican jungle, and we took us like five or six hours in a car ride, and then an hour hike to get to this waterfall. And I and I remember we had to, you know, crawl through the water to get to the waterfall park part. And I left my cigarettes in the van, and we're sitting around this beautiful water uh, waterfall. And all I can think about is when are we going to go back? so I can smoke a cigarette and it was at that time that I knew that you know that I was I was held prisoner by uh, by nicotine and my life was the same way with alcohol drugs it was my master it was it was what I went for for comfort it was when I was mad sad um, any emotion that I had it, it was the answer and what happened for me is, in the beginning, alcohol and drugs were a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun with it, and um, but the disease progressed, and so it, it was a lot of fun until I started getting arrested, until I started having marital problems and financial problems and legal problems, and before I had a restraining order against me and and all of that stuff. So the disease progressed from, you know, partying and having fun to partying in a little problems to all problems and um it was complete chaos right it was complete chaos it was yes and um and the thing with me is that i was surrounded by people that were enabling me and they were keeping me sick how so because they made my life cushiony and and i wasn't experiencing any um repercussions to my actions if I got a DUI they paid for my lawyer they kept me out of jail if, if I couldn't pay my rent they paid my rent for me and I would spend my money on drugs and alcohol and um, you know it prevented me from having to grow up and take responsibility for my own actions it, it made me comfortable it kept me comfortable and it wasn't until those elements of comfort were taken away that I became uncomfortable and forced to change. Um, so, but that's it, you know, my story is no different than, than so many that are in recovery. But didn't you say you, you just kind of felt this force that you knew this was it, like this was like your last chance, like you had to change or, or the next time you were just gonna die? Well, this that was on my second overdose. Right. And that was in an ambulance ride, and I knew I was gonna die. And that was when you got thrown. You threw yourself in the street. No, that was the first one. This was the second one. This was less dramatic, but it was in an ambulance, so it was still kind of dramatic. But who called the ambulance? I called the ambulance. So you called nine one. So you knew you. So you just overdosed, and you're like, I don't feel good. Come get me. More or less, yeah. But I remember in the ambulance looking up and telling the paramedic driver, you know, whether I overdosed to the point where I was going to die that time or, or I wasn't, it wasn't as severe as the first overdose. But in my mind, I thought I was going to die. And I remember telling the ambulance driver, just for dramatic purposes, donate my organs. And, uh, <laughs> hey, I was fucked up. Um, 
but I remember, you know, I need to call people and, and tell people goodbye. Wow. And, um, and Abner had me blocked because he was staying in a hotel. So he had me blocked. And for some reason, I didn't want to wake my mom up because I had done enough to her. And I just, I just laid down and I, I just said to myself, this is it. And it was the loneliest moment in my life. But it, it wasn't severe enough to get me sober. Wow. But you did. I, I mean, after the overdose, did you continue to use? Or I continued to use. After your second overdose? I continued to use. And it wasn't until... But, you know, that was that was a process of... Uh, the overdose and then um, you know things had really gotten bad at that point with my, with my marriage I was locked out of the house and there was they were trying to serve me with a restraining order and you know I was I had lost my my drivers I lost my wallet and I was staying in this cheap motel and I couldn't leave because there was just all this drama and my mom had sent a cousin of mine flew him down here he got me at the hotel oh I don't know this part he got me at the hotel and I couldn't get on a plane because I didn't have a driver's license wow so he drove me for three days uh, back to Tennessee oh wow and we were well, it was supposed to be three days but after the second day of me acting crazy in the car he was like he said we're just going to drive straight through and he drove me home and and it was then that you know i found that my world had become very small it was i was living in my mom's attic and i had a couch and a tv and I couldn't even watch what I wanted to watch. It was connected to her TV, so I just had to watch whatever she watched. And so it was it was Lifetime movies and, and home shopping channels. And, um, and that's what my life had become. I didn't have a car, I didn't have a job, I didn't have any money, and I was approaching 50 years old. Um, but I did, did have an awareness that AA was out there and so my mom would drive me to an AA meeting that was right, like half a mile away from her house. And I went there for about, uh, I went there twice a day, sometimes three times a day. And, uh, you know, I surrendered, you know, I gave up. I admitted that, you know, that, that it was my master and, and um, I had to drop some of my ego and I started, asking people for help and quit thinking that I knew it all and started taking suggestions and you know pretty soon my life started to change so that's pretty powerful so I remember I was in the room and I was when I first got to AA or when I was at my mom's and I was in the back of the room and I was crying and crying and crying and this guy that they call him an old timer. He came up to me and he said, "You know what are you crying about?" And I was just like, "I just want my life back." And he said, "Stick around, kiddo. Maybe your new life will be even better." I love that. Yeah. Oh so my god! It gives me chills when I think about that moment because at the time it didn't. I just thought he's a crazy old man, but you know I tell that part in my story because it for me today it, 
It's a huge turning it's point. Powerful, yeah. yeah, it's very powerful because, well, I know you from <laughs> when you <laughs> when you got off the plane yeah. on 420 like four years ago, yeah. and um, and to now, and you're a totally different person. I mean, you completely 360 to your life, full circle, you know, and and your life is way better now. You know, you, you run a, a very successful Airbnb business, which is mind-blowing. You've had the most amazing guests. I mean, you even have a turtle sanctuary going on. Oh, speeding. <laughs> you know, which is pretty fabulous. And you're a speaker now, and you're doing all these great things, and you're giving back, which is what life is all about, which is, I think, pretty spectacular. I don't know if, if that I've changed as a person. I think that, you know, without alcohol and drugs, I've been I've been allowed to be my true authentic self. So, you know, although my life has changed, I, you know, one thing that recovery has taught me is uh, to accept the person I, that I am and embrace that. So you weren't accepting of yourself before? I hated the person that I was. I had always lived like a double life. There was this... Um, I built this image of myself because I, I needed people to like me. And so my idea of, of people liking me was I was richer, I was smarter, I was better looking. You know, uh, I had all these things. And so I built this image or this persona. And at the end of the day, what happened was I was in love with this image, but I hated myself. Because there was a disconnect of the image I was putting out and the person that I really was. And, um, you know, I had to reconcile my behaviors and and what I was putting out there. So, you know, in the end that made me made me miserable. And so I think I used alcohol and drugs to change the way I felt because I hated the person that I really was. And and that was a, a fraud, a, a phony. And um so but I think it's really hard in society. So many people do that. So many people are fake, especially in Los Angeles and Hollywood. You know, uh, they think that they need to be somebody else instead of just their authentic self. A lot of people don't even know who they are. I mean, that's why self-help books are so popular, right? That's why alcohol is so popular. I mean, people will go and spend 8 to 12 to whatever hours at work and come home and the only thing that they're coming home to is a bottle or a drug or an opiate, you know, and all they want to do is forget about their day, you know, or some people are getting addicted to social media and Netflix and media in general. Well, I don't think you necessarily have to be um, an alcoholic or an addict to be a fraud, but I, but you might have to be an alcoholic and an addict to realize you're a fraud. Um, uh, you know, there's a saying that they always say, I'm, I'm a grateful alcoholic or a grateful addict, and I always squirm when people would say that because I, I never understood why anyone, how anyone could be grateful uh, to experience some of the you know the hell that I've experienced and today I know that it's because uh, without being an addict I would have never found the road of recovery and experienced uh, you know some of the spiritual growth that I've experienced because of it 
you know, for me, it was more than just taking away the alcohol and the drugs. It was finding a set of spiritual principles to live by, um, or as my friend says, the path of least resistance. <laughs> there is one thing that I think is very interesting. I've heard many people talk about this, and I've seen it in certain movies uh, recently. Uh, there was The Queen's Gambit, where I don't know if you saw it on Netflix, but it was about the woman who uh, was this phenomenal, award winning ch- worldwide chess player and she was taking some type of drug some type of um, opiate or whatever it was that uh, made her uh, a better chess player so she would see herself playing chess subconsciously Uh, the movie Billie Holiday Billie Holiday uh, used heroin she was a heroin addict and she also said that using heroin made her a better singer it made her much more creative uh, in that movie. That was my takeaway from it. I think we've talked about this also, how with you, you felt that when you were using, you were a much better designer. I was a much better designer. <laughs> or you felt you were a I much better... I, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking back today on some of my designs. I Just the term <laughs> extra comes into place because, um, yeah... I like that bathtub you sent me. It looked like Game of Thrones. <laughs> but some people do like that. That you was know? an eight thousand dollar I mean eight thousand square foot like cabin, rustic cabin. So it, it, it fit in, but it was still it was still a little extra there. Yeah. I'll own that. But I think it's it's part of that I I do drugs so I can work harder, so I can make money to buy more drugs so I can work harder so I can make money so I can buy more drugs um, you know it makes you it helps you become that that image that better designer that better um, musician the uh, better chess player it helps you become the person that you want to be and it alcohol and drugs work for that but as the disease progresses uh, it starts not to work and it goes from working to working with problems to all problems. That's my experience with it. It's awesome. Well, this has been a really fun discussion. I'm glad that you agreed to be on my show. Yay! And happy anniversary once Thank again. You. And we did it at my favorite coffee shop here at Coffee. Yeah. So. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And thank, thank you, you. Uh, nurses and hypochondriacs, for listening. And remember to go ahead and support the show. Um, you can go ahead and give us a donation on PayPal. Uh, and the link is at the show notes. And also, you can Venmo us at Nurses and Hypo. At Nurses Hypo. And thanks again. Till next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to our Nurses and Hypochondriacs podcast. We love your support and we love our listeners. If you have some spare change, go ahead and throw some to us on our Venmo at Nurses and Hypocon. Also, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love that. And if you'd like to be a guest, go ahead and send us an email at nursesandhypochondriacs at gmail.com. 